Well, good morning. I am Dan Loggins. I am one of the pastors over at Calvary Baptist in Normal and have had the opportunity over the last several months, actually it's been about two years to get to know Pastor Dave uh, as we've met together as pastors uh, from the area and talked about church planting and I have a history in church planting. And so uh, when Dave said, hey, I'd like you to come and I'm going to take a little break and I'd like you to preach, I said, yes, I'd love to do that. I've been in this building, but I wanted to meet Crosspoint. I wanted to meet the church uh, known as Crosspoint Community Church, and so it's great to be with you this morning. My family is with me, my wife Megan, and then my four children. Uh, I have twin daughters, Karis and Chloe, that are 11. I have a son, Haddon, who's nine, and a daughter, Kayla, who is seven, and so they are with me this morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus this morning. Titus and chapter 2 is where we find ourselves as uh, Dave mentioned, I want you to uh, preach on something that has changed your life. This came to mind immediately. Uh, this truth and what I'm uh, calling the nature of gospel grace. The nature of gospel grace, what we see uh, here in Titus chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. It's Titus chapter 2, and we'll read it here in just a little bit, verses 11 through 15. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, my children and I were walking into a shoe store and for some reason, a flyer caught my eye that was, that was there in that shoe store. And it was a flyer for a half marathon, a 5K and a half marathon. Uh, and for some reason, that piqued my interest that day. Now, I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as a runner. I run to stay alive at times uh, and to stay in somewhat of a shape. Uh, but I'm not this just advocate. Uh, runner. I am not always out there. And so it might be strange that that day, well, at least it was strange for me, that that day when I saw that half marathon flyer, I said, you know what? Maybe I should give that a try. Uh, it was a strange urge that I had to try to give this half marathon uh, a try. And I've, I've run before. I've run some 5Ks, but had never, ever had the urge to try a half marathon. But for some day, for some reason that day, sounded like fun until I noticed that it was only four weeks away. Uh, and then after a quick Google search on what would it take to train for a half marathon, I noticed that it was only 10 to 12 week training programs. I said pretty quickly, uh, that's it. Uh, I, I don't, that urge is gone. I'm not going to try the half marathon at all. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I know after Googling what it would take to get to run that half marathon, and I was like, no, training is not my thing. I'll, I'll run a little bit, but training is just not what uh, I, I want to do. Some of you, though, may know what it takes, uh, and you like running for a half marathon. Uh, the rest of us who are normal people <laughs> don't want to do those kind of things. Training is not all that appealing for some of us, but... It is necessary, especially if you're going to run a half marathon. Whether it's for an upcoming race or an athletic event, training is vital. Well, here in this short letter from Paul to Titus, who is a church planter in the island of Crete, Paul is seeking to grab the attention of both Titus and the church he's serving in Crete with this call to be faith-filled in the midst of a culture of faithlessness. A call that was crucial not only in the culture of that day, but it's a call that is just as crucial in the culture we live in today. 
And Paul is making it abundantly clear throughout this letter how our behavior should match our beliefs. What we do should show who and what we believe in. And so this morning as we come to chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we come to the very heart of this letter. And it's here that Paul not only grounds his call to godliness in the very nature of the gospel itself, but he reveals to us just how the gospel trains us, how the gospel trains us in this faith-filled life. You see, what Paul is doing here is laying the gospel basis for the moral living that he's encouraged throughout the letter or the first chapter and a half of this book. He's moving from what author John Stott calls mundane duties to sublime doctrines, from religious duty, just the things we do, to a gospel-fueled delight in living out these truths that God has for us. And so while Paul's usual method, as we see in books like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, is to begin with doctrine, and then usually he gives this mighty therefore, and then he goes on to the implications of how we live out that truth. Here he's reversing that order. He's begun in this letter with duties, and now with a ringing for or because, he lays down the gospel foundation for these actions. He shows us the source and the motivation for the faith-filled life. And so what we learn from this passage this morning is a rather simple truth, and yet one that is sadly overlooked. It's a truth that a healthy, growing disciple is a gospel-centered disciple. A healthy, growing disciple, or we could say a church of disciples, is a gospel-centered disciple or a, a group of disciples called the church. You see, Paul understood the universal danger of forgetting what is most important. He understood the propensity of our hearts to forget what is central. And so, for Paul, being gospel-centered wasn't just this merely catchy phrase that he would use. It wasn't a new way to market this newfound church, this social group called the church for that day. No, for Paul... And really, for all the New Testament authors, this was the very core of the church, the core of the life of a disciple. Since the gospel had so radically changed their hearts and lives, the very thought of it being replaced as the center of their lives was unimaginable to Paul. Unfortunately, though, as I said, many churches today have seemed to lay aside this conviction. The truth is, as one author notes, All around us we see Christians relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. We see this in churches that are infatuated with the newest marketing schemes and the latest attractional programs. And Paul, though, says, I'm not going to allow you to just assume the gospel. I'm not going to allow you to just move on. He is passionately committed to not letting the gospel be fumbled by the church in Crete, but also for us today. And so let's look at what Paul says to this young church planter here in Titus 2 in verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is God's word for us today. And so before we go any further, let's thank God for his holy word. God, I am so grateful for this opportunity to share your word with this group of believers. This group of people who have gathered together as Crosspoint. And God, there may be someone here this morning that is brand new and, and does not yet know you. And so as they hear your word, I'm asking that you would, through the power of your spirit, awaken hearts. If those are dead hearts that have yet to see the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, in the good news of the gospel, God, would you do that work? If there are hearts that maybe have grown cold or maybe have laid aside the good news of the gospel, they, they have once believed it, but they've set it aside, God, I pray that you would ignite that within them again, this passion, this desire to preach the truth of the gospel to themselves daily, to truly know the nature of gospel grace at work in their lives. So that we are not just disciples here on a Sunday, but we are disciples of you throughout the week, that we are living out the implications, these truths that we read here each and every day, so that you would receive the glory, we would find our joy in you, and so that those who come in contact with us would smell that sweet aroma of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so God, do the work that only you can do through your word this morning. I pray that I would not be a distraction to your voice being heard through your word in your name. Amen. Well, here in these verses in front of us this morning, Paul explains just how we are to adorn the gospel, the teaching of God our Savior, and how it's even possible. He tells us the gospel makes it possible. And he lays out for us the nature of gospel grace explaining to us that grace saves, it trains, it waits, and it redeems. And so that's my four points this morning. Grace saves, grace trains, grace waits, and grace redeems. For you see, what I believe God wants to call each and every one of us to through this passage this morning is to center our lives on the grace of God in Jesus Christ, to live truly gospel-centered lives by allowing the gospel to go to work on us in our own lives and in the life of your church. As Pastor Mike Bullmore has so profoundly noted, a local church is healthy to the degree that, one, its pastors, teachers are able accurately, effectively, and broadly to bring the gospel to bear specifically into the real lives of the people, but also, number two, that its peoples have a, have a deep personal understanding of and a deep personal appreciation for the gospel, so as to be able to live in the good of the gospel daily. And that's what we're after, to live in the good of the gospel daily. In other words, the gospel, that good news of Jesus Christ's life, his death and resurrection, his coming return must not just be stated as the center of the Christian life, but it must function for us. It must do work at the very core of who we are. And so as we dive into this passage, into the nature of gospel grace, what we need to be asking each and every one of ourselves is this. Do we have the gospel of grace functioning as the center of our lives? Or is it just something I, I say? 
I have? Is it just Christian lingo that sounds good? Is the gospel doing its work presently in my life? And so first of all, we notice Paul explains what should be obvious to us, but it's often assumed, and that is in verse 11, that the gospel of grace saves. Notice how verse 11 begins. It begins with a simple word that we often just read over pretty quickly, for. But it's a word that connects the passage with the preceding verses. It, it ties the, the weighty doctrine of verses 11 through 15 with the practical instruction that we, found in, in, we find in verses 1 through 10 as, as Paul lays out how the older are to instruct the younger and how they are to live self-controlled lives. Paul's argument for godliness in the everyday flows from a design of redemption, that God's commands for our behavior as believers are rooted and grounded in His grace. And now it's, it's easy to skip over these words, but they are so important. This small word for connects our conduct with the gospel that has transformed us. As Tim Keller points out, we never get beyond the gospel in the Christian life. We don't move on to something bigger and better. Another truth to hold, no, the gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. It is rather a hub in the wheel of truth. And so, having explained how they are to act to this young uh, church planter, uh, Titus, in the, uh, at the island of Crete, now he moves on to say, here's, here's the power to do so. If, as you live as faith-filled men and women in this horrible culture that they lived in, if you look uh, back at chapter 1, in verse 12, it says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, uh, not uh, not a good thing to live amongst. And he's saying, here's how you are to live. Live submissive, self-controlled. But here's how, here's the motivation for it is the gospel of, gr of grace. Belief and behavior continue to be woven together in this beautiful tapestry of biblical teaching Paul gives us here. For, Paul continues, the grace of God has appeared. Paul believes it's essential to the health of disciples and churches churches today, that we have a full comprehension of the grace of God appearing. And where has that taken place? Well, it's, we could go, it could go without saying, but again, it's not going to be assumed. It has appeared in Christ, the Word that became flesh to dwell among us. We've observed this glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. He's full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, grace incarnate. Paul's use of grace here is actually meant to be just a one-word summary of God's saving act in Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace of God, simply put, is the gospel. Paul is essentially saying here, grace has appeared, that is, Christ has come, bringing salvation for all people. You see, friends, by His very nature, our God is a saving God. And that's good news, isn't it? God is a saving God. His gracious gift of salvation has appeared for all, and that includes you and me. And so, you see, friend, if you're here this morning and you've never turned in faith to Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sin, the harsh reality is this. Paul writes about it in Romans 1. He said that we're without excuse because we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so we are without an excuse, and 
For us, we are separated from God in that sin, in that exchange. But the good news that the grace of God has appeared, Paul says it this way to the church in Rome, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned, they've fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so, friend, if you have yet to turn in faith, repenting of your sins, turning to Christ, this is the offer of salvation for you today to to believe in this good news, the grace of God appearing for you. Turn in faith to him today, and by his nature our God will save you. The nature of gospel grace is that it saves, and that is good news for us all. Not just a one-time good news, it is an ongoing good news. Many, if you were like me when I grew up in the church, I had a certain understanding that the gospel was something I believed once and then I moved on from it to something else, to a list of do's and don'ts. My upbringing was a rather legalistic upbringing where I had a a certain idea of how I was to live my life as a believer. My dad was a pastor and and taught us the truths of Scripture, but the culture that I was in made me think that, okay, that's good, but I've got to stay in God's good grace by doing a bunch of things. Well, here, Titus tells us the grace of God has appeared, but it also does something else. It's brought salvation, but in verse 12, he shows us that grace trains us as well. He shows us the gospel is much bigger than just simply our conversion experience. You see, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. It brings that salvation to us, but He says in verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the gospel goes to work on us. And here Paul is personifying the grace of God. He's basically saying grace, the Savior, now becomes grace, the trainer. He trains us in the way and by the power of the gospel. As I alluded to earlier, I'm not the biggest fan of training. Uh, I have been involved with sports, but I always liked the game, not the practice. And when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I was a scrawny, 125-pound freshman. I decided I was going to play football. Uh, I had played flag football before in junior high. I decided I would go out for the rough and tumble football uh, with helmets and pads and all that kind of stuff. And so put those on and felt heavier uh, uh, for the practice. But I hated practices. Now, one of the reasons I hated practices was because we trained during those practices, and one of the specific drills that we had was called bull in the ring. If you played football, you may have had that that little drill happen. It was miserable. It was horrible. Because usually what happened was a scrawny freshman would be in the middle, and all of the big juniors and seniors (laughs) would be a circle around us. And what was supposed to happen in the coach's mind was that Uh, We, as the scrawny freshmen, were supposed to keep our feet as he just kind of sneaks around and taps one of the other players on the shoulder, and they would come running at us, and we were supposed to take the the hit. Uh, And to be honest with you, for a while, it didn't seem to make much sense. Like, was this just 
torture for us as freshmen? Is it to make us leave? But later on, as I got into the game and then came junior and senior, it made sense because I needed to be ready at any moment to get hit by someone if I'm carrying the ball. And so if I take that hit and I'm able to stay up on my feet, all right, I'm good. Well, that drill was all about us training for the game. Didn't really enjoy that, but I knew it was for my good. And Paul is saying a similar thing here. The training of God through the gospel has a purpose in our life. Oh, we may not always like the training the gospel initiates in our lives, but it is always necessary. And so for that reason, we can and we should welcome the training of the gospel in our lives because we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. And so grace trains us, Paul tells us, to renounce ungodliness or to reject, literally to say no to what is opposed to God and to renounce worldly passions, that is, to reject fleshly lusts that are at war within us. You see, grace trains us to renounce our old way of life. Even though we may enjoy it, may we, we may love it, he says, no, there's a better way for you to live. I want you to renounce the old way of life and live this new life. Turn from ungodliness to godliness, from self-centeredness to self-control. The gospel does that. It goes to work in our lives, and it creates in us such a delight for God as our supreme joy that we have a distaste for the old, the distaste for the things of the world, as the hymn writer writes, when we turn our eyes to Jesus and we look in his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But grace doesn't only train us negatively, it also trains us positively because Paul goes on to say it shows us to live how to live self-controlled. That is expressing self-restraint fueled by the Spirit in us. To live upright, righteous conduct toward others, doing to them what we would have them do to us, and live godly lives regarding God's glory and His will in every aspect as more important for our good, for His glory, doing so out of love and reverence. You see, this is what the gospel does in our lives. It not only brings salvation to us, but it trains us in the way of life. And he says it does it in the present age. In other words, right now, God is at work in your midst, in your life. Oh, it may seem like you're struggling to overcome that sin. Maybe that self-control is so difficult, the grace of God will train he will do that good work in, in you. And so, brother and sister, let me ask you this. Are you soaking your mind and your life in this grace? Are you becoming saturated with the good news of Jesus so that he trains you to renounce the things of this world and to live what he has for you? Are you welcoming that training of God's grace in your life? Are you preaching this good news of the gospel to yourself daily? Reminding you yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, since we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness, the truth is this kind of training can be joy. For we've received power for today. But we also have hope for the future, which is where Paul moves to next. 
Look at verse 13. He shows us not only does grace save and grace trains, grace waits. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us while we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we're going about this training in the present, we do so with a hope of, of grace in the future. Now, now, this kind of hope, this blessed hope, is not a, a wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. It's not even a likelihood. It is a certainty here. Paul has already written of this certainty back in chapter 1 and, and verse 2. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Oh, it's, it's been promised before the ages began by this God who cannot lie. And so our hope is firmly established in that promise, that never-changing, always-truthful word from God. And so our certainty about the future enables and motivates our consistency in the present. And notice what Paul is saying here. The appearing of grace, in verse 11, creates this eager expectation for the appearing of glory here in verse 13. Now, both of these appearances speak of the same person, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. And we know who we wait for. We know who is coming. And the gospel creates in us this hope-filled waiting, a waiting of earnest anticipation for the appearing of our Savior. We don't dread that final day when Christ will come back. No, for for those of us who have been acted upon by God, who are called children of God through faith in Christ, We long for our Father to come home. We can't wait for that day. If you've ever been to the airport to pick up someone, you know the kind of anticipation that is there in that airport terminal. Uh, When we lived down in North Carolina for some time, my parents, uh, both set of our parents live up in Wisconsin, and every once in a while they would come and down to visit us. And there was one specific evening uh, that my mother-in-law was coming uh, into town, and she came in late, late at night. It was like 11.30 that she was flying in to the uh, Raleigh-Durham airport. And most of the time, children are asleep at that point. But because of the anticipation that grandma was coming, our kids couldn't get to sleep. And so we said, all right, we'll just, in their PJs, we'll we'll all go to the airport to, uh, to pick up grandma. And so we all went to the airport, And there are my four kids, all in their PJs, just waiting, waiting, watching to see is when does grandma come around the corner. And when she came, not even that security guard that was trying to hold people back could hold our four kids back. They just took off, running to grandma, the squeals, filling the whole airport. Uh, They had such an excitement, anticipation for grandma to come. They eagerly anticipated her arrival. Is that your posture towards Christ's return. Oh, I just, I can't wait. I can't wait for the King to come. Do you eagerly anticipate our Father's appearing in glory? Because you've tasted, you've seen that He is good. You've seen the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So you wait with that blessed hope. You know in confidence that He is going to appear in glory. You see, the nature of gospel grace is not only saves, not only trains, not only creates in us this eager waiting, but finally it redeems. Here at the end of verse 14, Paul is summarizing all he has been 
explaining about grace as he writes this. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice how Paul continues to anchor his call for godliness, for behavior that matches beliefs. He, he, he calls for it through Christ's work of redemption here. He also anchors it in Christ's work of redemption that changes our identity through His grace. It's not just what we do, but who we are. Paul tells us here, He redeems us from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Paul is rotating the gospel diamond with all its beautiful and magnificent facets here. He's And as he does so, he reveals that Christ's sacrificial gift of himself on the cross for us, for our sins, was the display of his glory in a people of his own possession. It was to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession. His grace takes us out of that pig pen, sin that has made us guilty and dirty. God's grace makes us innocent and clean. But you see, grace not only wipes the slate clean, it also gives us a brand new slate, a new identity as a people eager to do good works. Again, remember the identity of the Cretans, liar, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's saying, this is what God's grace will do. It will no longer make you these liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, but a people of God's own possession eager to do good works. I mean, that's some turnaround, isn't it? That is amazing grace. Peter makes that same point in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, remember, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I mean, what an exchange. What a change in identity. We are now, those of us who have not been God's people, separated in our sin, away from God, only deserving His just wrath forever and ever, now because of grace, are His people not because of anything in our own self, not our good works, but Christ's good and final work has changed us. So then we live out that in our good works, eager for good works. Our good works are a natural outgrowth of His work in us by His grace. You see, what ultimately makes us holy is not our willpower, nor guilt, nor an inspiring message on a Sunday but a deep grasp of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Do you have a deep grasp on the grace of God? The grace that saves, it trains, it waits, and it redeems us. When El Nino's rain bombarded South California one winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. While the family was still In their home, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. 
The parents began to search in desperation throughout the darkness for the child, tromping through the mire that had descended upon their whole neighborhood. They searched, they dug, they called for their child throughout the long night without any result. When morning came, however, a rescuer, himself covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud cake bundle in his arms. The baby, filthy, but alive. You know what the the mother then did? She clung to her child despite the filth. And then only, only after clinging to her child for some time did she then wash some of that muck away. Friends, that's exactly what grace does. For when the filth of our sins were sweeping us in our helplessness to eternal death, God covered himself in the muck of this world to rescue us. And then embrace us, despite our filth. But now, washes us clean by His grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, friends, may we be disciples who are rooted in the past grace of Christ on the, on the cross, His work on the cross, May we submit to his present grace at work in the Spirit, training us, but then also expectant of the promised grace to come in his glorious appearing. This is the nature of gospel grace. This is good news for us today. And so, Father, would you help us as your people to relish in this good news? Be amazed by the grace that has saved a wretch like me. God, I pray that we would go from this place using your word to do that good work in us, submitting ourselves to your spirit's work in us each and every day as you shape and mold us more into your image and not into the image we have for ourselves or what the world tells us. Be, but live out that changed identity as a people, your people, your own possession, eager to do good works. God, I do pray that if there's someone here this morning who has yet to experience that life-transforming grace of God, when Jesus Christ covered himself in the dirt and grime of our sin and came to that individual, that they would experience that rescue this morning. God, that you would draw them to yourself. That they would come to me or to any one of the elders after the service this morning and we would have the opportunity to share with them more about this grace and that they would this morning experience that amazing grace by turning from their sin, falling on their face in faith to your Son, Jesus Christ. For us, who have already believed, may we not assume that we know these truths. And so just move on into the week by saying, okay, we've got it. We've done our tradition of gathering with the church on a Sunday morning, but no, God, may we live it out throughout this week. May we be the church this week that is gospel-centered. May we be disciples that are saturated in the grace that has saved us that trains us, that creates in us this eager waiting 
knowing that we have been redeemed, we have been changed by you and you alone. So God, do that good work in our hearts for your glory and our joy in you and you alone. In your name, amen. Romans uh, 3, 22 through 26 says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of the God's glorious standard. Yet, God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what would be done in this present time. God did did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Peace and forgiveness is what we've been given. Peace and forgiveness is what we should pass on to those who've sinned against us.